1: Cool fact! A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: The FT Price comparison websites are to be investigated by the city regulator. Four big investment ideas from some of the country's most eminent economists. And as Royal Mail issues its first results after flotation, we get the latest views on the shares. I'm Jonathan Ealy and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form with the help of my FT colleague Lucy Warwick-Ching. Hello. And our special guest Richard Hunter, Head of Equities at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hello. We've all used one at some point, either to switch energy supplier, arrange our car insurance or compare mortgage costs, and we're all familiar with their infuriating advertising campaigns. Price comparison websites such as GoCompare, Compare the Meerkat or The Market, MoneySuperMarket.com and Confuse.com are big business. But how much do we actually know about how they make money and can we be sure they are really giving us the best deal? The Financial Conduct Authority is not entirely convinced by price comparison sites and plans to investigate them. Earlier this year, the head of the FCA remarked to a Treasury Select Committee that they were all, and I quote, "gamed." What exactly did he mean by that? Lucy Warwick-Ching is here to explain. Lucy, price comparison sites save millions of people time and money, so why is the FCA so concerned about the service they're providing?
3: Well, as you say, I mean, I think there's more than 40% of all car insurance and house insurance policies are actually bought online using one of these price comparison websites. Um, And the problem is, as these price comparison websites have grown, so has competition for people's business. And all it's come down to now is price. Everyone is absolutely obsessed with price. So, the companies themselves will do anything to appear at the top of the price comparison website. So they'll strip everything out of the insurance policy and just become the cheapest. So although when people are looking on these sites, they get very excited, they'll get something that's much cheaper than something else. Quite often people will get inadequate cover. Or by the time they get to the point of sale, they'll have found that these what they thought was a very cheap deal has actually gone up to a lot higher.
2: OK, and that's things like motor legal protection, accident breakdown cover, all the sort of little bits they sell as add-ons while you're going through the process. Is that right?
3: Yes, exactly. OK,
2: let's talk a bit about who owns them and how they work. Now, MoneySupermarket.com is a listed company already. Its shares are on the stock exchange. But who owns the others?
3: Well, this is why the, the FCA is looking specifically at these kind of insurance products that are being sold because lots of these uh, price comparison websites are actually owned by big insurance companies. So, for example, Admiral owns com, while Eshore has got a 50% stake in GoCompare.com. So, I mean, as anyone, you know, thinking about this, is actually, it does seem that perhaps there could be um, conflicts of interest with the insurers that are actually offering these these products.
2: And how do how do price comparison sites make money?
3: Well, Yes, yeah, so basically they work on commission. You know, they call it a fee. They call it something, um, Money Supermarket, which is one of the few independent companies, that so it's not tied to an insurance group, as you say. Um, it receives a flat fee, which it calls a success-based marketing fee. And this is every time a customer buys a product, it doesn't actually matter how much the product is. So there isn't an incentive for Money Supermarket to actually um, sell you the most expensive product. They will get a fee anyway, whether the product costs... £2,000 or £200. And it seems that most of these price comparison websites work along the same lines. But the problem is, is that these um, fees are very opaque, really. No one really knows how much fee they get. So instead of something like in the fund management industry, we know that fund managers get a certain percentage of how much you're spending on a commission. With price comparison websites, we don't really know how much they're getting.
2: So that's never disclosed to the, to the consumer. Yeah. Okay. Now, what effect could this FCA probe have on the sector? I mean, we've seen a huge number of price comparison sites launch uh, over the past few years. Uh, they compete very vigorously for customers. They spend fortunes on advertising. What effect could a, an investigation have on the industry?
3: Well, I mean, I think it's very likely to put on hold any ambitions that these companies have had of stock market flotations, at least until next year when the um, review, which um, the FCA is, is carrying out this review of 14 price comparison websites. I mean, it's supposed to come to its conclusions next year. So I don't think we'll see any excitement on, on, along the lines of IPOs until then.
2: Thank you very much Lucy. You can read more about the world of price comparison websites on our website at ft.com forward slash money. It's free to use provided you register which allows you to read eight articles each month. Still to come on the show, what's the outlook for Royal Mail shares as the company posts its first results since listing on the stock market? But first let's think big picture. Earlier this week, the FT gathered four eminent economists together to get their views on where the global economy is heading. We deliberately encouraged them to be as outrageous as possible, and they didn't disappoint. First up was Jim O'Neill, formerly of Goldman Sachs and famous for coining the term BRICS and for his fervent support of Manchester United. Here's what he had to say about global economic growth prospects.
4: The marginal changes in what China... Is doing uh, is so much more important Um, and I could go on and on again yet uh, as I've done so many times about the what what the marginal shift in China's GDP and and indeed consumption means to the world but if they were to grow at seven and a half percent this decade which is what I've assumed that would have the global impact as if the US were growing by four which from what I can see and I've been checking this recently for some work I'm doing the US has never done that in my lifetime over a decade. And that's what China is doing at slower growth. And very importantly, in contrast to the other three BRIC countries, China is so far growing by more than that this decade. The other three have disappointed my expectations, but China is actually doing better uh, than, than what I thought. So, Unless China really slows down a lot more than seems to be such consensus chatter in the markets, um, it seems to me China's contribution to the world is going to get bigger and bigger, even though people don't seem to still realise it. Put it in the brick context, the past two years, a uh, joke about this is sort of that China and India is a bit like comparing Man United and Man City, or it, or it was. Um, China's created another India in the past two years.
2: Now, the outlook for the UK has improved materially in the past few months. Stephanie Flanders, who will be familiar to many of you as the face of the BBC's economics coverage, but is now working as a strategist at JP Morgan, thinks that the outlook for the UK could get better still and that we've been far too pessimistic about prospects for our hometown economy.
5: Interestingly, even when I suggested this, the mood around the UK economy was less optimistic. Than it is um, now, and I think you know people are becoming more upbeat about the UK, and quite rightly so. I think we we always make the mistake in the lead up to any crisis of, in economic terms, mistaking the cycle for the trend, thinking that the good times will carry on forever. But then we always also make the opposite mistake, or especially if something it drags on for a while, of assuming the bad times will carry on forever. And I think that happily, we've now moved away from that depressed state in the UK, but I would argue we're still not nearly optimistic enough, and indeed to be more optimistic about growth is not to be unrealistic from any kind of historical perspective. I was just looking at the latest uh, set of independent forecasts that the Treasury collates on the UK. The fastest forecast for next year is still 3%. Now, that assumption, to assume that, we can, that, that it's, a, it's the most we can hope for is around 3% growth next year, may be plausible, but to expect that to be the best we could achieve for the next few years and indeed maybe the peak of what we could achieve and maybe go back to a sort of 2% growth over the next few years, which most uh, forecasters seem to think, I think assumes not only that we will sort of struggle to put this financial crisis behind us, which may sound plausible to a lot of people, but that we will have more permanent damage to our economy and find more of our loss of output in the last few years irrecoverable than we have ever had in modern history, whether it's World War I, World War II, the 1920s, the Great Depression, OPEC, none of these things prevented us from getting back to our previous trend growth rate and getting not just getting back to our previous train growth rate, but getting back the output we lost in the period of a recession.
2: Alas, the prospects for the Eurozone are nowhere near so bright. Here's what Martin Wolf, the FT's chief economics commentator, who describes the Eurozone as a masochist's paradise... Had to say about the chances of it eventually breaking up.
1: What are the possible ways out of it? Well, one possible way out is that the Eurozone becomes a genuine transfer union. <coughs> that's not going to happen. It's absolutely clear that's not going to happen. The second possibility is that the Eurozone becomes what I've called an adjustment union. By that I mean that there's really symmetrical adjustment with rapid growth in demand and rapid rise in relative. Uh, wages and prices in the creditor countries it's absolutely clear that won't happen in fact Jens Weidmann has made it completely clear if there's any sign of serious credit growth in Germany he's going to use his macroprudential tools to kill it and I promise you that I've, I've heard him say that um So the third possibility is the Eurozone remains out of sheer terror of the consequences of departure, the masochist paradise it is today. Uh, And the fourth possibility is that at some point, completely unpredictably, some event, possibly uh, a government actually pushed into default, which Willem-Boyter thinks is very likely, possibly some election that nobody foresees. Somebody says, in a serious country like Italy, Spain, we've had enough of this. We've just had enough of this. We're out of this. And quite suddenly, as Rudiger doinche used to say, the great thing about financial crises is they take much longer to get to than you think, and when they happen, they happen much more quickly than you imagine. And quite suddenly, everybody says, this really was a stupid idea. Let's end it.
2: And finally, it's long been accepted that the free movement of capital is central to economic prosperity. But Hélène Ray, a professor of economics at the London Business School, said that's not so. She contends that there is precious little evidence that global flows of hot money have brought any economic benefit at all. And here she explains why.
3: Since the 1990s, capital flows have uh, increased really exponentially in size, particularly portfolio debt and portfolio equity flows and also bank flows. So, it is to, to such an extent that if we look at cross border investment position data in the 80s, for advanced economies, they were about 60% of GDP. And uh, in 2007, they were up to 450% of GDP of advanced economies. Now, that means that these are literally trillions of dollars that have crossed borders. And yet, it has been extraordinarily difficult for economists to identify the economic benefits that came for these flaws. And this is despite the fact that numerous studies have been done uh, in academia.
2: There's lots more on these big ideas and how to turn them into investment strategies with recommendations on individual funds from leading advisors in this weekend's FT Money. FT Money is part of the Weekend FT, which, don't forget, is available on Sunday as well as Saturday. You can also read it on all major tablet platforms and online at ft.com forward slash money. On to our final item for today. Earlier this week, Royal Mail posted its first results since floating on the stock market, covering six months ending on September 30th. The Postal Service said operating profit doubled in the period compared to the same period a year ago, although it did caution that a warm summer affected the level of parcels business. Meanwhile, the controversy over the company's initial public offering rumbles on, with Business Secretary Vince Cable hauled before the Commons Business Committee this week to justify the pricing in particular. The shares are now up 60% on their listing price, and one of the banks involved in the flotation, UBS, has now said they are high enough. So what should ordinary investors make of all of this? I'm joined now by Richard Hunter, Head of Equities at Hargreaves Lansdowne. Richard, what do these results tell us about how Royal Mail is doing?
0: I think it's fair to say Royal Mail is doing very well. There's absolutely nothing wrong with the results, and indeed, uh, a number of the key metrics uh, are certainly moving in the right direction. The concern, if any, is around valuation. Um, as we know since the uh, 330 offer price was announced the, the shares are currently up nearly 70% whilst uh, even from the very first mark on the first day of trading the, the shares are, are up 24% on on a sort of earnings basis they're around depending on which figures you use around 15 16 so they're not outrageously expensive however and equally importantly they're not outrageously cheap um, And from a technical point of view, because the price has risen so far so fast, the dividend yield has gone in the opposite direction. And that was one of the main attractions uh, for Royal Mail at the beginning. So the dividend yield at the moment is around 3.5%, which, of course, is still... um, robust enough given the current interest rate environment but uh, compares rather less well with some of its European peers such as Deutsche Post where the dividend yield is around uh, 6% as we speak. So it's probably no surprise given the um, absolute spike we've seen in the share price that the general market view of Royal Mail is that they're no more than a hold at these levels.
2: Okay now you mentioned the yield there which of course was a, a, a very big attraction of the shares when they floated. I think at the float price the yield was well over 6%. 3.5% is around about in line with the market generally. So if you got shares in the IPO and you still hold them you're sitting on a 70 odd percent gain what should you do? Should you hang on to them or is is now a good time to sell?
0: I think there's an argument for both. Uh, As I say, the general market view is that you hold on to the shares, but uh, this is not likely to be a a high-growth company. So, as ever, it's a question of whether you you require the money. Uh, And certainly, were you to divest divest of your holding, uh, you're sitting on an extremely tidy profit. So there is an argument. Uh, for both. Uh, From an investment case point of view, the only one that we've excluded from that is is whether to buy the shares and of course there aren't too many um, analysts out there currently uh, suggesting that course of action at the moment. So I think on balance uh, given that there are still prospects uh, longer term for Royal Mail, not least of which is through online shopping um, fulfilment, that the market call of uh, hold for the shares is probably the right one.
2: Okay, and finally, are there any uh, clouds on the horizon for the business? I notice in the results statement that they haven't yet reached a formal agreement with the union, and, uh, and also there are some concerns about rising competition.
0: Competition, particularly in the parcels area, is uh, especially fierce. Uh, in addition, of course, some of its rivals don't have the um, burden of the Universal Postal Service over them, which, of course, Royal Mail has got. And, of of course, another thing is that a a big bulk of its business at the moment is the letters business. And and that's one where um, the the decline is is gradual, but uh, there's no doubt that the letters business is in terminal decline. So it's it's very important over the longer term that Royal Mail um, replaces that income by very much by consolidating its its parcels business so there, there certainly are uh, some clouds on the investment horizon
2: and just finally richard uh, at the at the time of the next review it's still pretty much certain that the that royal mail will become a FTSE 100 constituent is that right
0: it seems that way. I mean, at the current price of let's say five five eight, that gives it a market cap of five point six billion pounds, which, all things being equal, should uh, quite comfortably catapult it into the FTSE 100. And indeed, with that in mind, could have been uh, responsible for some of the buying pressure we've seen since flotation, whereby institutions, anticipating uh, that Royal Mail would become a FTSE 100 constituent, have been buying the shares, especially those which are in index trackers.
2: Thank you, Richard. That was Richard Hunter, Head of Equities at Hargreaves Lansdowne. The best analysis of Royal Mail's results and share price prospects is, of course, on FT.com and in this weekend's FT Money. We've lots more in this weekend's issue too that we haven't got time to talk about today. The premature ending, for instance, of the government's funding for lending scheme for mortgages our fascinating Q&A session with the Pensions Minister, Steve Webb. We look at the lavish promises made by the Scottish National Party to Scottish voters around pensions and childcare. And finally, my column looks ahead to next week's autumn statement, and we've also a piece on how to profit from smoking, assuming, of course, that you are comfortable making money from a product that kills people. And on that cheery note, it's goodbye from me, goodbye from Lucy, and goodbye from Richard Hunter of Hargreaves Lansdowne.
1: For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.